Hi. Hi. Oh, I can't. oh, there we are. Hi. 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 Okay. Here we go. Can you hear me? Yes. I think we're all here, right? Yes. All here and our ears are all open. Our hearts are all open. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for your word, Michael. Hey, you're welcome. We're ready for your second sermon now. You can start it. <laughs> all right. Ah, ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> How's everybody doing? Good. Doing well, doing well. Happy to be here. Um, yeah. How are you, Martha? I am tired and discombobulated, but it's okay. It's just a couple more weeks and then the move will be finished and then, and then it's unpacking. So that's more tired and discombobulated, but eventually it stops. So yeah. does it? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Does it not? <laughs> no, it does. It does. <laughs> Moving is like the worst though. It's so stressful. They say moving is one of life's like hardest events, you know, that we have to face from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's like moving and death and divorce and like all the big ones. So it's a, it's been an interesting 2021, even though I feel like it's been a great 2021. I've kind of hit a lot of those markers because our dog died and we're moving and we got a new puppy, which is great, but a little stressful. So yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting 2021 for sure. My gosh. And there are nine more months to go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that actually was not comforting, Christopher. <laughs> I kid, I kid, I kid. I know, I know, I know. Um, well, we have, obviously, it is our monthly Ask a Theologian any of your burning questions. Um, and so, actually, let me pick up my phone and look in the chat. Nobody has uh, asked any questions yet, but this is your time, guys. So go ahead and start ask inputting your questions into the chat and um christopher do you have anything that you'd like to start us off with oh my gosh well what i loved was uh the story about your grandmother this has absolutely nothing to do with the theological question um but i love when we hear stories about um people whom we haven't met and such a clear picture of who these people are um and was did your did your grandma does your grandmother know or did your grandmother know um, that you were going on a path of theology? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, my my grandparents were really really funny. Um, so, uh, but all of my grandparents have uh, are are long are long dead. Um, and uh, you know, uh, my my paternal grand my paternal grandmother, so my dad's mom, uh, was uh, a faithful Methodist who went to church every week and would actually like pick up uh, kids uh, from like the surrounding farm community and take them to Sunday school on Sunday mornings and was just like this really like faithful Christian woman. I remember uh, as a kid, sitting around the, um, the kitchen table for breakfast at her place because her, her house was just across the gravel driveway from our place on the farm. And um, we'd sit down and have waffles and she'd uh, say, all right, everybody close your eyes and bow your head. And she'd say this really simple prayer, uh, asking God to bless our loved ones and everybody else's loved ones. And she was really this like model of, of faith for me. My, 
my maternal grandmother on the other side was kind of a model of like of, of sharp wittedness. Cause like I said, I mean, she was known, she could just, she could just cut you to the soul with like five words and she was well meet. I don't know. I think she was well-meaning. It's kind of hard to say, you know, uh, my, my dad used to tell this story about how, um, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I, I was born in the seventies and grew up in the eighties and, uh, and my dad, uh, you know, we, we, we watch shows like, like cheers, you know, and, uh, and, um, my, my dad showed up once to my, at my grandma's place. And she's like, oh, well, there's my fat son-in-law, like Norm from cheers. <laughs> and so, you know, these little things like, uh, kind of lasted in the family's memory, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't know, uh, if she, she saw it that way, but I, I'll tell you what, um, after she died and after my, my maternal grandfather died, I inherited like all these books from their library of like, you know, uh, Methodist hymnody and like how to read the Bible from like the 19 teens and twenties and thirties. So they, they grew up in a, in a home that was, you know, very much kind of rooted in faith and, and they were faithful Christians that went to church their whole lives. But what I think I learned from my grandma is uh, kind of a permission to like doubt and a permission to like really think critically uh, because there's something about those little things that like push you, you know, uh, to like, you know, think, well, well, how, why is it that everybody can sort of make the Bible say what they want? And um, I'm really thankful for that because uh, I learned kind of like the kind of beautiful piety from one grandmother. And I learned uh, a kind of quick witted uh, critical thinking from another grandmother. And those two skills have really served me well as an adult. Yeah. yeah. Love that. That's so fun. We do have some questions that are starting to roll in. Um, so Hyatt would like you to, could you give a Cliff Notes version of the history of the temple in relation to the gospel story today, i.e. when it was built, destroyed, rebuilt, etc.? Okay, so uh, this is Bible study time, and uh, for any of uh, the general seminary students that might be online right now, uh, my dates are are like our clergy rounded dates, not uh, Bible scholar dates. So I might be a lot off by a couple of decades, but basically, the you know the temple in Jerusalem is uh, is built. Um, by uh, by uh, King you know King David and King Solomon build this this temple to to God in sometime around like 900 uh, AD 900 or uh, excuse me BC 900 so it'd be, uh, 900 BC and so uh, this is the the first temple and it's it's where the ark is sort of is, is set it's where uh, sacrifices are are held and it's kind of the the heart of uh, of, uh, of at least the story about um, Jewish religious life or is Israelite religious life, um, and there are other places, other temples in ancient Israel and ancient Judah, but this is like the main the main one, and it's destroyed in uh, the five five fifty five fifty five. Uh, BC by the Babylonians, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in with his troops, uh, destroys, uh, burns the temple, uh, takes, you know, uh, takes away the gold, um, takes the priests and the, and the royal house of, of Judah into captivity and moves a bunch of people um, from uh, the, especially the religious, the, the royal caste, uh, the, the kind of the, the well-to-do, moves them from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon as a kind of like uh, a way of like destroying the culture and destroying the memory of the temple. But it's while they're in Babylon 
actually that the in the in the 500s BC that we develop a synagogue tradition a tradition of how do we worship God without the temple because people have been asking this question like what what we're doing right now in the pandemic is an extension of thousands of years of people trying to figure out how do I practice my religion without the place where my religion is supposed to be practiced mm-hmm. well they come back from from exile and the second temple is rebuilt and um, and then uh, it's also kind of like damaged by um, uh, in, in the story of the Maccabees, but then it's re- reset up. And so by the time of Jesus, it's been reestablished. It's been expanded by King Herod. And it's like real. It's like huge and glorious. Um, but there's a lot of like concern among the people that the worship that's going on there isn't really authentic worship. You know, they're kind of longing for old days that they read about in the stories of the Bible. And they're worried about, you know, are the priests actually you know, like legit priests, or are they kind of like just in it for the money? And and what's the role of the king in all of this? And why does he seem to have like so much control over what's going on in the temple? So there's a, a kind of like counter narrative about what's going on in the temple. But still, it's like the high point. It's the focal point of religious life, because this is symbolically the place where heaven and earth kind of meet together, and God can meet with God's people. And I mentioned in the sermon that uh, synagogues are like little mini temples, and and uh, there's uh, uh, this really amazing archaeological find in um, uh, around the Sea of Galilee uh, in uh, the the recovery of the village of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is uh, is is likely from. And you go into the the ruins of Magdala, and there is a synagogue. Uh, uh, the ruins of a synagogue that were incredibly well preserved there on the on the seashore of Galilee, and they uh, and it's it's we it's like the best preserved first century synagogue in ancient Israel that we have, and it's laid out almost ex- sort of like in dimensions like the temple, and in the middle of it where the Torah would have been sat, the Torah scroll would have been sat and read from is this podium, this big stone podium that actually looks like the temple in Jerusalem and its carvings. And it has like little menorahs carved into it and little angels carved into it. And it's like, it's supposed to sort of symbolize that in the center of this building on the very place where we hear from God is this thing that reminds us that this is the place where God is found and where we hear from God. So very, very symbolically significant. There's this Jewish uprising in the 60s, uh, 80s, 60s, uh, you know, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus and uh, Christians, early Jewish Christians, are still worshiping in the temple, we think, uh, up until this point, because there was no prohibition against temple worship in any of Jesus' teachings, and Jesus himself worshiped in the temple, and Jesus, of course, was a devout Jew. Uh, but the temple's destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And, uh, and then, um, to sort of pour salt on the wounds, by AD 120, the whole city of Jerusalem is completely just wiped off the map by the Romans again. And so the destruction of the temple uh, at this point, first in 70 and then Jerusalem in 120, uh, creates the kind of splits Christianity off from Judaism in a pretty significant way. Both groups are trying to figure out how do we worship God without the symbolic center of the temple in our lives. For Jews, the answer is, well, let's let's rely on the synagogical tradition of, of, of prayer and study and conversation around the, the Torah, which is the living word of God. For Christians, it becomes as we gather together around the Eucharist and to hear God's word preached and to read the stories of the gospels, that's how God becomes present to us. And so the temple really is like the the moment where the the tree really sprouts off for for Christians and Jews. My goodness. Um, As Richard Tyler Osborne is saying, this is great stuff. (laughs) Thanks. 
It's um, just impressive that you know all that. I like. I think I do. I don't know who's who's talking right now. <laughs> it's, oh my gosh! It's like, have you guys seen that movie Old School? This is so far from theological. I love that's Old funny. School. I love that anything. He's the debate thing, and he just like goes into this zone, and he yeah. just goes on, and then he's like, "What? What, happened? what happened?" <laughs> that's like you. Yeah, it is. That's it. That's why I really love theology on tap. When people take me out to a bar to ask me theological questions, it's very much like that. Oh well, I know what we're doing after this COVID time pandemic. <laughs> yes, that will bring the masses. I love it. And Brian, my Brian, has a question for you. In the first reading, it talked about resting and not working on Sunday. How do we reconcile working on "quote unquote" the day of rest? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. And some Christians do really hold a strict view of the Sabbath. They're called Sabbatarians. And um, there are um, the Seventh-day Adventists are a great example of this. They they worship God on Saturday, not on Sunday. They don't work on Saturdays at all. And they're really, really strict about this. They're kind of, this is a, a 19th century group that, that has emerged in the present day. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been periods of various periods in the church where Christians have taken a very literal view of, of not resting on the Sabbath day. Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Sunday is the first day. And Christians worship on the first day because this is, well, so Sundays are kind of like both the first day and the eighth day. And I'll, I'll unpack that in a second. It's the first day because this is the day when Jesus rose from the dead. And so Christians worship on this, this day in remembrance of Jesus raising from the dead. So in a way, every Sunday is a mini Easter. It's a mini celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. But it's also the eighth day because it, it sort of speaks to a new era, a new time in which God is at work in the world after, you know, in, in God is restoring creation. So if we think about the creation story ending with humans uh, being, you know, placed in this, this paradise and somehow uh, falling into sin and losing this paradise, um, the, the, the Sabbath cycle kind of reminds us of that, but then it's kind of broken or like fulfilled, as it were, in the life of Jesus, who opens us up into a new, a new world, a new eighth day of a kind of eternal life, eternal paradise is what we're kind of heading, heading towards in a sense. So Christians have seen the sun, Sunday as the day for worship and not always seen Saturday as a day for rest, although there have been various Christian groups who also try to rest a lot on Sundays. And we have like blue laws in some states where you can't buy booze on Sundays, or you can't close, shops have to close at a certain time on Sundays. But, you know, one of the, the, the things that, uh, that we look at in the Bible is Jesus's relationship to the Sabbath. And, um, you know, Sabbath observance in Jesus's day was really strict, and you, you couldn't do good works on the Sabbath. You couldn't, uh, as the one of the stories in one of the Gospels illustrates, you know, you couldn't take grain, you couldn't be walking through a field of wheat and grab some grain from a, a stalk of wheat and move it in your hands to eat it as a snack, because that's seen as harvesting on the Sabbath and would have violated one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is really critical of this rigid Sabbath observance. So we tend to think that um, the point of the Sabbath isn't to have a, a necessarily a set fixed day of every week as a day where we can't do any work, but rather that God's inviting us to think about what is the, what is the goal of human existence. And when we look at the Ten Commandments within their context, 
Imagine if you were this, um, this, this Exodus community who had just within your generation of living escaped the, the multi-generational bondage as a slave in Egypt. And you've crossed through the Red Sea and you're sitting on the base of Mount Sinai and your prophet and leader comes down from the cloud and gives you the law from God. And on that law from God is permission to rest. The one thing that you could never do as an enslaved person where you're constantly having to work for somebody else. This is an example of God's grace for God's people. So God, God intends for us rest, for sure. God intends for us freedom and liberation and rest and enjoyment. And that's what God's calling us to. So actually the law, which we tend to see as kind of like you have to rest or you can't do this, is instead God's permission to say, Here's space for you to rest. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a commandment that reminds you that your purpose in life isn't to do somebody else's work. Mm. And that, that's what I think the Sabbath is teaching us today. Mm. That's a good That's answer. sermon number two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, actually, that's sermon number three. Yeah. <laughs> You're really hitting it out of the ballpark today. <laughs> no, but I, I love that. That resonates with me so much. Just and, and I like like when you answer questions, these theological questions, Michael, what I really appreciate is that like what I get from it. And of course, I probably don't get a lot from it. But like what I, I feel like um, there's always this um, kind of overarching sort of story. I, I am I frozen? No, you're there. No, oh, you're there. Are you I'm guys frozen? Are frozen on my screen? Um, so there's always this sort of overarching story of like, wh- who is God? And yeah. like seeing every the, everything in the Bible through that lens. And I just, I love kind of always bringing it back to that because it is, the Bible really can be and historically has been used and weaponized yeah. because mm-hmm. they take that who is God out of it. And so I just like, I love every month when we do this because I just feel like I keep hearing that that message reaffirmed and I like I just think that's I don't know it resonates with me and I feel like it's so important for like the Christian church at large to keep hearing that so I mean think about how people use the Bible to say things like you women can't preach in church say right like that you know there's a there's a whole branch of the Christian church where women can't be ordained priests or bishops or, or even deacons and uh, or, and deacons, I should say, not even deacons, but and deacons. Uh, and there's a, a whole branch of the church where women aren't allowed to teach theology or the Bible at all. And uh, and that that's, I mean, and they're, they're using, they're cherry picking a couple of verses from the New Testament mm-hmm. to, to, to say that this is how God wants it to be. But then you look at the whole Bible and you look at like this big story of what God's up to. And God is, is using all kinds of people to do to, to serve God's big purpose of God's redeeming love for the world, including amazing women who have really significant roles to play. Yeah, sure, the cultures that they are in are often like profoundly misogynistic and sexist and limit the capacity or the potential for women to engage in, in a lot of things. But it seems like the undercurrent is that God is always using all of God's people, and God really loves underdogs. I mean, who did God choose to uh, to be the, the vehicle for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but a 14-year-old girl from a teeny tiny hilltop village in the north of Israel, Mary. You know, Mary is like the least of the least, and that that becomes, she becomes the way in which God comes into the world. So I think you just have to, you have to look at the whole thing uh, and not just like the little pieces. And it's when you do that, you get to begin to see like God's big plan unfolding in front of us, in front of us and behind us and with us. 
Yeah. Well, this leads perfectly to a question from Michelle via Hyatt. Also, could you Howards are in the house. Yeah. Also, could you talk about how you think about gender and God, especially related to the use of terms like father versus mother? Wow, that's really funny because I I have an exam, I have an exam question in one of my classes that asks students the same question. Oh my god! So, um, so Don't I, give the answer. Yeah. Well, it kind of depends. Uh, that's uh, well, give, give the answer, and then the test is if they're listening or not. <laughs> well, I I tend to think that you know, first of all, you know, God God is beyond gender. Um, you know, God is, if there's one thing that we know about God is God is always like slipping out of our definitions of who or what God is. And um, we only know God because God tells us who God is and shows us who God is. And uh, what we have seen and been told by God is that God doesn't, doesn't fit in boxes, doesn't, doesn't stay in the temple, doesn't hold to our definitions or descriptions particularly well. And so I don't think that God has gender in the way that we understand gender. I think lots of masculine language has been used to describe God in the Bible. Um, but there's, and there have also been plenty of examples of feminine language being used to describe God. Language is almost always metaphorical, uh, especially when it relates to God. We're trying to describe what God is like, as opposed to who God is, because we, uh, because, uh, you know, it's, it's, anytime we say God is X, we are in a way kind of putting, putting a language box around God's, God's freedom. That said, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, the language of father, I, I tend to think that it's it's totally appropriate and, and actually really, really significant that Christians are invited to call God father. Um, on the lips of Jesus, father becomes a proper name for God um, because Jesus calls God father, uh, not God father like Godfather one, two, and three, but God as Father, and um, God, Jesus calls God's Father as a way of inviting us into a relationship with God. And so, what does fatherhood mean to God? Especially the ter- the kind of more domesticated term for fatherhood that Jesus uses in Aramaic, this this notion of Abba. Well, it means that God is is the one who um, protects us, is the one who is with us is the one who we can put our trust in, is the one who we can count on, and is the one who's always got our back. And um, and certainly Jesus could have used the language of mother, but I think in his context that would have been wildly misunderstood as perhaps a relationship to like a goddess cult or something. Um, but I, I think we can, we can definitely think of God as mother, and I have no problem with people referring to God as mother. But for me, uh, I, I refer to God as, as father because that's that's the pattern of prayer that Jesus instructed, and that's the pattern that, that I feel most comfortable with. Um, I have a lot of friends who uh, refer to God as she, especially the Holy Spirit as she. And, uh, and for them, that's a, it's a really powerful way to, to remind them of the nurturing, caring, sustaining, kind of mothering um, n- nature of God. And, and I, I, really, I really value and appreciate that. For, for me, um, she, she language do- doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. Um, I will occasionally refer to God as she, but, but it, it, it's, uh, it, it has the same limitations that he language, frankly, does. So when it comes to using pronouns for God, I tend to use God as a pronoun for God, um, and uh, I try not to use he if, if possible. I'll use he to refer to Jesus or to Father because those are sort of grammatically masculine, and Jesus was biologically masculine. Um, but I, I think one of the gifts of our moment right now 
that I'm really excited to explore is how um, our expansive understanding of gender has really challenged the limitations of English language mm. and giving us pronouns for, for people uh, like, like they, and, they and them in a singular sense. And I, I find that really interesting because what we're finding in like our human experience of gender tells us something about how we can understand God as, as, a, as, a, as a non-binary gendered being. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, I want to like explore that a little bit more. I haven't had a lot of time to think through that, but I think that for our, our gender non-binary friends our, and our transgender friends, um, we can see in them an image of something about a God who is constantly pushing boundaries, not just in language, but in terms of the way that we understand uh, gender and personhood. Mitch Kramer is uh, recommending for Michelle a, a book he read a couple years ago called Is It Okay to Call God Mother? Um, do you know this book? I, I don't, but I think my answer to that would be, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> That's a very short yeah. book then. You don't need to read it. I said it's okay. <laughs> um, no, I just, I, I love that answer so much. Um, I think just the whole the whole gender thing um, is kind of a it's a big thing right now, and yeah. we're all I think trying to expand our own thinking and understanding of it, and to be able to frame it, I think with some of that divine. Uh, sorry, like a couple of times as you've been talking, I've been getting choked up today. I don't know what maybe I, I'm not sure what's happening, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, but it's just a really beautiful way I feel like of, of thinking about that, and I really appreciate you saying that. No. I mean, we tend to think that, that you know, we, the Bible talks about humanity being the image and likeness of God. And we've tended to think of that just in terms of male and female binary. But what if that like the whole of humanity, like all of us? And what if what if, you know, a, a male person and a female person and a genderqueer person are all in, in their own ways representing a piece of what who of who God is and what God is like? And how can we learn from a, a genderqueer person in a way that that we, we would, we, instead of just sort of, you know, pro problematizing it, what if that's actually an opportunity mm -hmm. to, to really reflect on what does this tell me about who God is? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think it's really exciting. I think it is too. It's beautiful. Um, we have uh, another question from Mitch. It is, we hear about God being unchangeable, but have several stories in the Old Testament of God seeming to change God's mind. How do we reconcile those two things? Does it matter if God is changeable? Yeah. So, you know, there is this verse, uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, um, and sometimes we read this uh, it, it to sort of mean that God is like um, locked in carbonite, like Han Solo, and just like always, <laughs> you know, never, never changing. And that's definitely one way to look at it. And if you were um, kind of a, a philosophically minded Greek speaking uh, Jew or Christian in the, you know, the, the centuries leading up to the first century and, and certainly beyond that, you would hear in that something about the kind of unchanging nature of, of God that resonates deeply within Greek philosophy. And you would think, yeah, that's exactly what that means. But that's that's kind of using a that's using a Greek philosophical mindset to look at the the God of the Bible, uh, and uh, is is sometimes it's really helpful. And like Greek philosophy gives us all kinds of like really helpful ways of thinking about God and, and ourselves and our faith and the world around us. But when, in my opinion, when that that philosophical tradition forces me to reread the entire Bible in a way that is completely different than how the Bible is representing itself, I have to sort of say, well, maybe there's something wrong here. Yeah. 
And so I don't think that the, I, I think the story of the Bible shows us that God is, is changing in a lot of ways, in, in, at least in God's relationship with humanity. We we're talking about this in Bible study on Thursday. And, um, you know, it may be that God and God's self is perfectly unchanged because God and God's self lives outside of time. And we only understand time, a change as it relates to time. That could certainly be, we could, we could make that argument. And, and so we see God as God is, is, as we are engaging with God over time. And that is definitely an experience of change and development, uh, you know, with God repenting, uh, that he, God feeling sorry that he ever created humanity in the story of the, of the, the flood story in, in Genesis, um, uh, six, uh, we, we see, um, you know, God, um, God, uh, you know, acting in different ways with God's people at various points. Of course, the consistent message is God's creating, sustaining, and redeeming love for God's creation and, and trying to bring everything back into relationship with, with itself and with God. That's definitely the big story, but there are different ways that God sort of navigates that through time. So I think that God is, uh, is not just sort of some fixed uh, unmoving, unmoved mover. Uh, I think that God is dynamic and interested in us. And, 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 and basically what it comes down to is that the Bible is encouraging us to think of God, uh, not as an object that is like an idol that uh, is unmoved and unhearing and is something that we create, but that God is a person, uh, a person who is free a person who we relate to, and a person who has this dynamic exchange with us. Now, God is, is probably not personal in, a, in the limited way that we are persons. God is, is more like supra-personal. So God is not less than a person. God is like everything that a person is and then more than person. So when we think that we have love, uh, but our love has its limits, you know, <laughs> haven't we all said, you know, my love has its limits. Um, God's love doesn't have limits. And, uh, and where we say that, you know, we, we can know something, whether it's ourselves or another person or the world around us, God's knowledge doesn't have limits. God is, is, has all knowledge. So I think it's helpful when we hear about God, notions of God's unchangingness to, to be reminded of how God is, is how we learn about God in scripture and uh, to ask ourselves, what kind of God are we presented in scripture? Is it an unmoved God that doesn't exist in or doesn't relate to us? Or is it a God who's always asking for relationship? Mm. So beautiful. My goodness. <laughs> we got a good word today, Michael. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I don't think we have any more questions, but okay. Mitch is saying that he loves the idea of how God's own being can relate to our non-binary friends, which I agree with. And Rich is saying that your humility is so inspiring and beautiful. And I agree. Thank you. And Aaron Lee is just giving a double high five. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, that's pretty good timing for us. It pretty much takes us up to time. So, um, any any final parting thoughts for anybody? Yeah, you know, just uh, keep up the good work <laughs> and join us on Bible study on Thursday afternoon or Thursday evenings. It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much. We are so fortunate uh, to have this anchor of knowledge and heart and wisdom in you. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. So generous. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.